Thank you, Devin. Well, this morning we continue our series about knowing truth, and particularly knowing the truth about Jesus, and we've just come through a season in which we want to know the truth about the resurrection and whether it really happened and does it really matter and then what we can do about it. But today we continue a series. So if you have, the, if you have your Bibles, if you don't have one, uh, there should be one near you and a chair in front of you or beside you. And just pull that out and uh, turn to the Gospel of Luke. And if you're not sure where the Gospel are in the New Testament, go about two-thirds in the way. And um, you'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and go to the sixth chapter as we uh, come back to where we left off a, a few weeks ago. Uh, in this series about the truth... We find the truth is personified, in other words, it's in a person, but it's also in the words of that person, and, and that's where we're getting that record from Luke, whose stated purpose was to deliver the exact truth about the things that people have been taught about Jesus. And in chapter 6, we, we see Jesus telling the truth about what is our relationship with the law. In, in many ways, people look at Christianity or any religion, what are, what are the rules, what are the regulations, what, what do I... What must I do to, to be a card-carrying whatever it might be? And so Jesus talked about the law, and we, uh, we tackled that as we see that Jesus came to set us free from external standards, but a much, much stronger and more challenging uh, truth is we need to live that out on the inside, inside out. And then we saw how Jesus prayed all night and decided to, to choose a few particular individuals to be his representatives, and they became his disciples, and if, I guess if you want to make a distinction between disciples, uh, they were disciples with a capital D, and all of us are disciples with a lowercase d, and it's not that they were any better, but they had a different responsibility. Sometimes we call them the apostles. They were, they were the 12 that were to represent him um, after he died, and we know Judas uh, bailed out before, and that was according to God's eternal plan. But now we look at the truth about something that we can all relate to and all desire and pursue after. I dare say if we were to talk to any group of people, are you interested at all in being happy? I think we'd all say yes to that. And In fact, then if we wanted to qualify, well, I, I don't want to just be happy. I want to be truly happy. I want to be really happy. I don't want that happiness to be fleeting. I want it to be sustained in my life that I live. Well, well Jesus teaches to that. As he brings down his followers, his disciples, his apostles from the hill. But before we get into what Jesus said about happiness, I thought I'd go to another source of authority beyond the Bible. It would be Pinterest. Anybody want to know what the Pinterest says? Actually, this is the first time I've ever been on Pinterest, but I wanted to be in touch with my, my feminine side. So I, I looked at what, what, is, what does Pinterest say about true happiness? And this is what Pinterest says, Happy are those who take life day by day, complain very little, and are thankful for the little things in life. And I was thinking about that. I'm not a very deep person, but I was thinking, well, if that doesn't make you happy, at least makes the person you're living with happy if you do that. Uh, and then there was another one. It says, Being happy is very personal. It's a very personal thing, and it really has nothing to do with anyone else. And again, I was trying to think through this very deep thought. I was like, what does that really mean? I, I guess it might mean that your happiness, if it's true happiness, is not dependent upon someone outside of you, but it's that person on the inside. And then another uh, quote was, your happiness will not come to you, it can only come from you. And so there seems to be a kind of a theme there. It's, it's something that's got to be more than 
what is happening on the, on the outside. It's, it's got to come from something deep inside. But the, the one statement I was able to kind of figure out, happiness is coffee in one hand and confidence in the other. <laughs> and for some of us, you know, the only way we begin a day happy is to have a coffee, all right? You are not happy until we've had that first cup of coffee. But I ho- hopefully there's something more we can, we can glean about true happiness than what we could get out of Pinterest or anything else you'd Google in terms of what is happiness. And I think uh, there is no better source of authority than, than Jesus himself. And often when we think of Jesus, we, we think of him being a teacher, we think of him being a source of authority. The Bible tells us that the Father had given him judgment powers. He's the one that's going to be ultimately judging uh, people in eternity. He, he, he's the one who came to save us from our sins, and he's the one preaching holiness and righteousness. And so we're thinking, okay, that's quite a bit on your plate already. That's, that's my picture of you. But I want to submit to you that Jesus was the most happy person that ever walked on this planet. He was the most joyful person who ever traced the steps that anyone else could, could, could go as they lived their lives. In fact, Jesus, when he, when he was speaking to his disciples on another occasion, he, he said, I, I, my, my desire for you is that you might experience joy. But not just joy, I want you to have full joy. Not just joy and full joy, I want you to have my joy. And so he is one who can speak authoritatively on what happiness is. But I, I want to warn all of us, he, he doesn't quite approach that theme, that subject, the way we would. In fact, he often did not do that. I was reading one author this past week, and this is what they said about Jesus' teaching. The teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ is diametrically opposed to human thinking. Most of the Jewish people, particularly the religious leaders, found it repugnant, offensive, and threatening. And sometimes we need to see that this was the reaction when Jesus preached and taught. He he was popular with one crowd, and he was unpopular with another crowd. And some people just didn't not like his teaching. They were horrified by it. In fact, this author says this, In their minds it was so wrong that it had to have been satanic. It had to come from the devil. Then and now the, the Lord's teaching shatters popular worldviews. It challenges men's motives, turns their world upside down, and stands their thinking on its head. It makes no attempt at political correctness and ignores conventional wisdom. So what did Jesus have to say about true happiness? Well, let's, uh, let's try to look at it this morning. Uh, going back to where he left off, so Luke chapter 6, verse 17. Right after Jesus picks his 12, we have these words. Jesus came down with them. And stood on a level place. So you, you have Jesus with his, with his apostles, his disciples, the disciples with a capital D. They come down, and he begins to start to do what he normally did. Um, he met a crowd. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. And so really, this is kind of the makeup of what happened when Jesus would arrive on a scene. He'd have his closest companions, his twelve, and then he would have a, another group, a little bit obviously larger than the twelve, and he said there were many there that were his followers. That's what the word disciple means, to be a follower and a learner. There, there were already people who had bought in, at least on the surface they had bought in. And then you had the larger crowd, the, the multitudes that he came, the throng of people from a variety of geographical areas. And, and really anyone who speaks about Christ uh, to others. There's really only two types of people you can speak to. You have the people who, are, who already believe or the people who are thinking about believing. 
And that's who Jesus is, is encountering when he comes down the mountain. And, and then it says in verse 18, who had come to hear him. Sometimes we wonder, well, what, what brought people to Jesus? And sometimes we will go to the second part. We're going to read in a minute. But people wanted to hear Jesus. They, they want to know what he had to say. They were interested, is there something he's saying I need to hear, and maybe it will change everything about my life. Now, of course, there were people who, who wanted to see, did he have authority to say what he was about to say? And, and that's the other reason they came. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And then I like how they describe all that what he did in terms of the miraculous. In verse 19, and all the people were trying to touch him. For power was coming from him and healing them all. Jesus was not the, the kind of healer that he didn't, he didn't heal the tough cases. He healed everyone because he had ultimate power to deal with any kind of disease. But then we, then we have Jesus now meddling with people in, in a subject they were all interested in. And sometimes, let's, let's be honest, sometimes you might come to a, a service on a Sunday and whatever the preacher is speaking on, you're saying, well, that was okay, but that's, I'm not wasn't really interested in that. But Jesus is speaking now to an area that they all wanted to experience. Not just hear about it intellectually, but they all wanted to be happy. And he uses the word blessedness, and we're going to see this in the text. And the word blessedness is, uh, in the Greek word, it's the makairos word, but it, it really has the idea of, of living the good life, truly being happy, uh, being favored by God, experiencing life to its fullness, to have true joy, to experience what everyone wants in life, the, the life that it's filled with with that would you wake up every day and you're excited about living. And, and, and so he, he speaks to that, and we hear him this way. And I'm going to read the entire text in a moment, and then we're going to go back and, and look at it. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he speaks to them, who are going to be repeating his words, and everyone else is listening in. He began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for your fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Now, they, they, uh, they were struck by the first word, blessed are you, so they, they, got, they got hooked right then. Well, I want to be blessed. I want to be happy. I want to live a good life. I want to live life to its fullest. And, and then he begins to explain it, and they're thinking, wait a minute, this makes absolutely no sense. This, this doesn't register with what I've always been taught, and at least on a, on a superficial level, what I've experienced. I, I don't consider myself blessed. Just think of some of the words that were there when I'm poor. I'd rather have the alternative. I don't consider myself blessed when there isn't a whole lot on the table to eat when I'm hungry. 
I'm not particularly in the best of moods when I'm crying and weeping. Uh, I, I would prefer to be popular rather than unpopular. I, I prefer people flatter me or at least compliment me rather than ostracize me and insult me. Th- this can't be what you're saying. This can't be true happiness. But that's what Jesus said. Uh, one author, Warren Wearsby, put it this way. He said, what Jesus does in this section, and many of you are familiar with Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, beginning at chapter 5. A longer version of that, and there's a debate whether this is the same sermon with a summary form or whether it's a, it's a sermon preached more than once in a different place. It doesn't really, it's not crucial whether you come on either side of that. If you want to know which side is right, I'll tell you about it afterwards, but no. Um, but this is what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, four spiritual H-bombs. You're blessed when you're poor. When you're hungry, when you're hated, and when um, um, you're weeping. He said, four spiritual H-bombs. Concentrated theological epigrams that detonate with the increasing effect, blowing away shallow talk of discipleship, and thereby calling for true commitment. Uh, stated very poetically by Warren Wiersbe in a way saying, look, these are things that kind of explode your mental picture of what happiness is all about. And yet Jesus was speaking to a crowd that largely had not felt they were blessed by God. They, they, they thought somehow God had forgotten them. And, and the reason that they thought there was no hope to connect with God because if that were true he he would have already shown his blessedness by doing the things that everyone wants people don't want to be poor they want to be what they want to be rich you know people don't want to be hungry they want to be full they want to be satisfied you know people don't want to be leap weeping they want to be laughing people don't want to be rejected they want to be loved and yet, what he was saying to them, and this has really got to their heart because they were saying, look at, really what you've missed from the very beginning is, is you're thinking that God favors only the, the people that circumstantially, on the outside, their life looks like it's blessed. But you're envying people who aren't living the good life. They might be on easy street, but they aren't on happy street. They might look happy on the outside, but they're not happy on the inside. And and I want to take these things that you're picturing something physical, and I want to go beyond that, and I want you to understand this is where happiness comes from. Well, let's see if we spend a little bit of time on each one, how that might be true, and and it makes sense if we think about it a little bit. And that's what often what counterintuitive thinking is. It it doesn't sound right the first time, but the more you think about it, it does sound, it sounds true. He said, blessed, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Well, what, what is he saying there? Well, as I said earlier, they thought that, that if you were blessed by God, you'd be prosperous by God. And that actually the Bible does teach that in some places where God brings richness to people. But he said, you, you're, you're looking at this picture in the wrong way. Because people are, are really only blessed if they have a right relationship with God and that only comes from seeing the poverty of your soul. 
Remember in Luke chapter 18, you have the, you have the self-righteous man who seems to be pretty prosperous, and he comes to God, and he's just bragging before God, and, and that he, he's so glad he's not like somebody else. And then you have the sinner and, and, and the tax collector, and, and he is just, he's just crying out to God, feeling so unworthy. And Jesus said, well, which one went away right with God? It, it was the one who saw his need for God. And he said, a, a, a person only desires something more when they feel they haven't got something. Isn't that true? If you feel like you've got everything, you, you won't pursue anything. And if that's true on a physical level, how much more true is it on a spiritual level? Only the people that see a need for Christ will come to Christ. Blessed are the poor. And particularly the idea in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the, are the poor in spirit who, who see impoverished before God. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 5, you go up to, I have in verses 6 and 7, but you could go four, you could go four, you could go 5, 6, and 7, 1 Peter chapter 5. He said, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the what? To the humble. And he says, humble yourself before God, and He will exalt you at the right time. And then he goes on, verse 10, that, that if, if you cast your cares upon Him, He will care for you. Not, just take that part. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you humble yourself before the, the a mighty God, He will exalt you at the proper time. When, when, and then he says the result of that is you care, are cared for him, he will care for you. W- would you say that you're happy in life when people you care about care for you? Yeah. And, and he's saying here, here's the primary relationship of all of life, and you have this kind of relationship with life. You'll know that the most important person in all of the universe cares for you so much so he invites you to cast every single thing that you care about to him, and he'll care for you. And there's a place where God balances out what we go through in life, experiential, experiential, well, in your experience. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 and 6, I just want to read this to you. There's an interesting statement in terms of how we ought to look at physical things in our life. Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9 says this. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I... Not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. I, I, I went beyond Pinterest this week and I don't have time. I, talked to, I, I read all kinds of reports on people who are considered poor in, in this world physically and people who are considered rich in this world. And there's, there's all kinds of myths in, in every different direction on both levels. But just take it from the scripture. You know what God says in terms of poverty and and richness, it's not, it's not a certain number on your portfolio. Is that you have become too rich when you've come to that point in your life where you don't think God gets any of the credit. When, when somehow, I don't need you, Lord. I, I, I'm a self-made per- person, and I have all that I need, and I don't need you. That's when a person is too rich. And, and you know what poverty is? Poverty is not having, you know, too little in your portfolio. Poverty is that place or a certain number. Poverty is when you come to that place and you're so angry at life that your only way of surviving is to be dishonest and take from others. But anywhere in between, doesn't matter how little or how much you have, if you're depending upon God, you are rich in Him. In fact, not only if it's not only true now, it's true in the future, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
And the kingdom of God is always understood in the, in the present tense and in the future tense. The, the kingdom of God is any place where the king rules and he reigns. And you can experience that right now. And then in the future, you'll experience it in its ultimate sense when the king is here. But no one will experience the sovereign provision of the king and ruler of this universe unless they have a need for him. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the presence of the ruling king in your life. Proverbs 10.22 said that the riches are a gift from the Lord, but richness is found not in a physical number, but a condition of the heart. So who, who is really blessed in this world? It is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And then he goes on and says this, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Now I know for some of you that the greatest question after church is, where are we going to go to? Right, yeah. Well, that didn't take a whole lot, did it? All right, where, where are we going to go to eat? Where are we going to have lunch? And it might be, who am I going to eat lunch with? Or am I going home by myself? Or what it might be? And it, it's the idea of, how am I going to feed my stomach? And, and that's important. Um, man shall not live by bread alone, but you have to have a little bread, right? But he's, he's speaking beyond that. He, he's not talking simply about how much you have to eat or where you're going to eat after church. He said the, the, the people really in life are the people who have a hunger in life. But he, but he speaks in Matthew chapter 5 that hunger is for righteousness. I, I know a number of people that have no hunger for righteousness. Their hunger is to get away with as much as they can. Have you known people like that? But, but think about it for a moment. When you lose a hunger for righteousness and you do whatever you want to get whatever you want, what's the result of that? Is that true happiness? When you do things that are wrong... When you lose that hunger for, for that which is right, uh, what's your experience? And there's usually two types of experiences. One is, if you have any type of sensitivity in terms of your conscience, you're going to feel a little what when you do that which is wrong? Feel a little guilt, right? Anybody enjoy the experience of guilt? Anybody love to be feeling that guilt or remorse for what you've done? And you say, well, yeah, but after a while, some people kind of get over that. You know, they, they, do, they do all kinds of things. They don't seem to feel guilty at all. Well, then they experience the other. And what's the other? The other is when you get away with things, you're, you're always a little bit uh, concerned that you might be what? You might be found out. And so you have to decide, if you don't have a hunger for righteousness, you're going to either be filled with guilt or you're going to be filled with fear. And, if you don't, and, and, then he, and God, obviously, in the Scripture, even puts that, that, that bar up a little higher. And if you don't get caught now, you will be caught what? You'll be caught later. Don't mock God. What you sow, you will also reap. And so he's inviting these people who feel like they have so little in life compared to people who seem to have so much in life. He said, look, you are blessed. You are living the good life if you have a right relationship with me. And that begins with a poverty in spirit. Because not only God doesn't help anybody who doesn't need their help and want their help, God doesn't, doesn't help anybody who desperately doesn't see they not only want his help, but need his help, and they're in, in, in a impoverished experience spiritually before him. And, and then as you think about living the life now, you'll never experience life to its fullest unless you hunger for that which is right in life. Because there's a satisfaction in life when you do that which is right. Isn't that true? When, when you do something good for somebody, 
When, when you do a job the right way, isn't there just a, a, isn't there just a, a satisfaction in that in and of itself? Even if you don't get rewarded as, as maybe as much as it deserves, but you do a, a job right, you do something the good way. And so he, he's just speaking into them. I want you to understand, you think happiness is found in the people you envy. It's not found there. It's, it's found in a relationship with the living God, and it begins with being a person who sees the need. And poverty sees needs, sees their own need, but sees that need beyond the physical to the spiritual. And, and then that point where you hunger for doing that which is right, and that only comes from God. And then he goes on to something that even probably surprises me more. He says, blessed are you who weep now. And then he says, for you shall laugh. How, how can happiness be described when a person is in tears and weeping? And in many ways, let's just be honest, in the New Testament it describes Jesus weeping a lot more than they see, we see him what? Laughing. Now, now we know he's joyful, but he, he's weeping often. And he's speaking again to the heart. He's saying, look, if you care about that which is most important, there will be times where you are struck with sorrow and grief, either over the loss of someone or for the pain of someone or the rejection of others. But even inherently in that, there, there's, a, there's a goodness to that. When, when you lose a loved one, we use all kinds of different languages to describe when people that we know die. But when you lose a loved one, and they're in the Lord, and you're in the Lord, have you really lost them? No, you know where they are. And so you're weeping now, but you're looking for the time when you're laughing with them, you're rejoicing with them, right? But if you don't have a relationship with God, when you, when you lose someone, either you think they're just never going to wake up, they're only in the ground, or you have no anticipation you're going to be with them in the future, or if you do, you you're mistaken because they didn't have a relationship with God and you don't have a relationship with God. And so as you think about this life, isn't life filled with so much more joy and even laughter when you know what the, the final chapter is bringing? Blessed are those who weep now, but they'll rejoice, they'll laugh later. I was reading a quote, a quote by Abraham Lincoln. And he said, if I could not laugh, I'd die. A person who's going through all the sorrow of the Civil War, but he was looking in anticipation of a freedom happening in our country. God invites us to be hungry. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes me shall never thirst. John 7 says, if we'll thirst after him, that we'll never thirst again. And in our innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then even as we think about weeping, Psalm 30, verse 5 says this, For his anger is but for a moment, his favors for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And isn't that true? When we know what is in the future, there's joy even in the midst of sorrow. In Hebrews 12, we know that Jesus endured the cross because of the joy set before him what it was to accomplish. And then, and then that statement again, which just seems so counterintuitive, so unlike what we would expect. He said, blessed are you. You are in a state of happiness. You are living the good life. You are experiencing the favor of God when men hate you and ostracize you 
and insults you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, and behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. They say, if you want to look for role models, don't look at the role models you're seeing now that seem to be prospering in this world and not really connected to the living God. But look back to the, the spiritual giants of the past who went through all kinds of suffering because they were doing that which was God's plan for their life. When you're in God's plan, you're in, the, you're in the center of what happiness, true joy is all about. And, and there are going to times where we're, 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 gonna, we're not going to be popular because we'll take a stand. And it's, it's when, we, when we take that stand or, or make a comment about certain things that are happening, it's, it's because not we're trying to promote ourselves as holier or more righteous than someone else, but it's, it's really speaking to the heart of what is right and what is wrong, what is breaking the heart of God and what people are getting accustomed to. I was sharing with one of you this past week. I was kind of shocked. I, I'm kind of a recovering sportsaholic. I haven't recovered too well. But, you know, I've, I, I've, I follow all kinds of things happening. And this past week, I, and I've heard her described as, as one of the th- three most recognizable people in the entire planet. If you put her picture up, people in every part of the world would, would recognize who she is. Well, this past week, it was, it was announced that she is with child, and she, um, she's going to bring a child in this world. And I was kind of fascinated by this. I was, I was kind of watching all kinds of the news stations and then also um, reading some of the, the written things about her, and not once did they talk about who the father of that child is. Not once did they say that she's not married. And we need to realize that this breaks the heart of God. And, and, and I'm sure if any one of those newscasters had even mentioned it, they'd been hated for stating it. And there's no such thing as an illegitimate child, but there are such things as illegitimate parents. And we need to realize that sometimes we only have to stand up for righteousness. You know, breaking our heart, but saying, you know, that's sin. God hates adultery. God hates sex outside of marriage. God hates the disintegration of the family. And there are going to be times where, where John the Baptist, we know, lost his head over that. And so as he, as he talks about this, he said, I want you to know true happiness is doing God's plan and following his lead in your life. And it begins with understanding you need that. That's what it means to be poor. And yours is the kingdom of God. And, and you need to hunger for that which is right. And, and when you do hunger for that which is right, you will be satisfied. You won't be filled with fear or regret or guilt. You need to weep over that which breaks the heart of God. But, and, you, and you need to, to have sorrow over ones you cared about. They're no longer here. But you're going to laugh with them in eternity. And you need to realize that all those who... Desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3.12. Acts chapter 5, verse 41, you'll, you'll be the kind of people who, if, if somehow in your stand for Christ, you, you receive abuse, you can be like the disciples of that day, and they counted it a place of rejoicing because they considered to be worthy to suffer shame for his name. What is true happiness not? And here's where he puts it in the negative, verse 25, verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. 
And, and so who are, the, who are the people that are not blessed in this world? It is the rich, for you're receiving your comfort now, but not later. And see, see we have, the, we have the, the settled proof that what we experience now is going to be magnified in joy and happiness in the future. But anything, anybody who lives just for today, whatever you're enjoying now, it's not going to last. And, and then he goes on and again says the same thing that he'd said in the positive and the negative. Woe to you. And the word woe is simply a, a very simple inter, interjunction in the original language, which is just a statement of denunciation. He says, I'm just coming down on you. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hang, hungry. You know how fleeting this life is? I dare say if I asked you, what, what did you have for lunch on Tuesday or or breakfast on Wednesday, or dinner on Thursday, you'd scratch your head. Let me see, what did, what did I have to eat then? And, and if you notice that, that no matter how well you eat one day, you're still hungry the what? The next, right? Isn't that true? I mean, you, you can eat really well one day. You, you can sometimes overeat on one day, and it might satisfy you for a few hours the next day. But it doesn't take too long where you realize, I'm still hungry again. And that, that's, what it, that's not true happiness is if, if you are constantly having to replenish on your own what is lost. And, and God said, why don't you come to the one who, if you come to me, you'll never, you'll never hunger again. You'll never thirst again. And, and then he goes on and says this, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. I don't know where that originated, but, you know, he who laughs, last, last best. Isn't that true? There's so many things in life where, where people start out well, and it looks like they're, I mean, they're really winning in life. Everything's going great for them, and all of a sudden something happens, and they, they don't win. They what? They lose. And, and, the, and the team that, that was losing, that wins, man, they're the one who has the best laugh. And there are going to be a lot of people who are joking around now, but when they, when they have their life ended, they're going to experience the sorrow of life. And then, of course, the last, verse 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. You know, you look back in the Old Testament, there's a lot of stories of the, the preachers and teachers and the prophets of God that got all kinds of persecution and heartache and pain. And, and after a while, I'm sure they, they were saying, why, why am I doing this? They're not listening to me. They're not responding to it. God has given me the message, and they don't want to hear it. And I'm suffering pain over this. Why don't I just stop talking and you know, let, let the judgment come? But we need to understand that there were some prophets who were getting that, but there were others who were very popular. But they were simply telling people what they wanted to hear rather than what they needed to hear. So when everyone, if everyone, if everyone admires you and respects you, if everyone wants to be your best friend, then it's quite possible you're not making enough impact in people's lives by speaking the truth. So what's the point this, this morning? Uh, this, was, this was a hard message for the crowd to hear and the, the, lar- the smaller group of disciples, and particularly in the 12, they're thinking, this is not what I thought true happiness came from. But, but as they began to, to settle down and listen through what, what Jesus was saying, it made sense. Because this is the kind of happiness that no one can take from you. If everything goes wrong, you can still experience the good life, the presence of God, the favor of God. 
And all it requires is not something you can't control. You know, people have pursued riches, and, and there's nothing wrong with riches if you don't deny God, and you use that in a, in a way that honors Him. But if, if you pursue riches to the point where you're loving it more than anything else, you've lost. And so he, he speaks to everyone there and says, look, you all can be poor. See the need for me. You, you, you can all hunger for doing that which is right rather than the alternative, just doing whatever you can get away with. You, you can all desire to, to, to see that weeping is part of life, but there's a joy that comes in the, in the morning. You all can, at times, realize you can't be popular with everybody because if you stand for nothing, what what kind of person are you? And the alternative is is the way of the world and not the way of God. So what's the point this morning? Let me speak to your heart and your head and your hands. I think we all have to ask ourselves this question honestly. Are are you really happy? Or or is your happiness dependent upon, you know, when you go home on Easter and, and the, 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 the barbecue blows up, you know. I mean, is, is your happiness only depend upon things always going right? Things are not going to go right in this world that's all wrong. Are you really happy, or can no one rob you of your true joy because no one can rob you of your relationship with God? Speaking to your head, well, what, what do you think needs to change if you're not truly happy? And this is, a, this is a status. He's not asking us to go out there and be more poor and be more hungry, more in the sense of like some kind of activity. But you need to pursue these qualities. This needs to be the character of our lives. You know, life is built on character. What is character? Character is based on decisions. What are decisions based on? Decisions are based on values, what you consider important. Where do values come from? Values come from what you really believe is important. What needs to change so that this becomes part of who you are? That's, that's who I am. And is there an action you can take to say, this is what I'm pursuing more aggressively in my life? I remember re- reading this poem when I was in high school, and it always struck me. And I want to close today with it. And it's the story of uh, Richard Corey. I don't know if you know the story of Richard Corey, and it's quite possible I can't even find the story of Richard Corey. Um, here it is. It's r- written by Edwin Arlington Robinson. It, it really kind of speaks to how sometimes we, we envy that which we think is what life is all about, and then we realize it's, it's not there. We've talked about where it is. It's being poor in the Spirit. It's hungry for that which is right. It's, it's weeping, but realizing there's a joy in the, the next day, and laughter, and it's realizing it's not about being popular here on earth. It's about being popular in heaven. But here's the story of Richard Corey. Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from soul to crown, clean favored and purely slim. He was always quietly arrayed, and he was always human when he talked. But still he fluttered pulses when he said, good morning, and he glittered when he walked. And he was rich, yes, richer than a king, and admirably schooled in every grace. In fine, we thought that he was everything, to make us wish that we were in his place. So on we worked and waited for the light, and went without the meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. He had everything, but he had nothing. Everyone thought he was blessed, 
filled with that which life is all about, but he had nothing because he didn't have a relationship with God. Let's pray. Follow all of us on a journey, and that journey is, is called life. If I just really pray as we are on that journey, each one of us, that we might know who is the giver of life. The giver of life which can last for eternity, but also the giver of life which can be full and abundant. Not necessarily easy, but awesome. And Father, I would pray that each one of us desire that which you desire for us, to be blessed. And it's, we're all eligible if we come to you with poverty in spirit and say, Lord, I need you. And for some, maybe this this morning, you, uh, they need you for the very first time. And if that be the case, might they open up their heart and life and say, Jesus, I want to know you. I don't want to play games. I want you to forgive me of my sin, that which is wrong in my life. And I want to follow completely and fully after you. And for some of us this morning, it might be we've, we've made that initial commitment, but we're, we're living for ourselves. And then we wonder why, why life doesn't seem to make sense. And Father, I just really pray that we might desire to be truly blessed by always pursuing a right relationship with you. Thank you for these hard words, these H-bombs, as some have written, that kind of explode our perspective on the good life. The good life comes from the one who is truly good and knows what's best for us. Help us to live for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We invite you as we...